With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome back to Humans of Speedway, a very special episode as we look back on the best of the guests for 2020. What a year it's been on many levels, but it's been great to bring this podcast to you and hopefully fill the void of Speedway action just a little bit uh, in your minds and in your ears. And thanks to everybody who's listened so far and downloaded any of the episodes. Now, if you haven't listened to all of them yet, well, you're going to get a flavour of all the different episodes that Humans of Speedway has uh, done through the course of 2020. Hearing from the likes of Nigel Pearson, Neil Machin, Peter Oakes, Shane Parker, Phil Morris and uh, Gary Havelock and Kelvin Tatum. In fact, there's a flavour of all of the different episodes we've done and we're up to episode 14 so far so quite a lot to cram in over the next hour and a bit so strap yourself in and enjoy right now we're going to kick off where it all began back in may this year released the first episode of humans of speedway but guest number one was a rider a rider who was not riding this year because of the way 2020 has gone but he's done plenty of it in the past seven time british champion scott nichols it was brilliant to have scott as episode one, um, because he's just done and won everything there is to win and do in Speedway. And the bit I'm going to play you is where we're talking about the British Grand Prix. Um, it's obviously, we know, a massive event on the Speedway calendar, on the world Speedway calendar. All eyes are on you. And if you're a Brit riding in that stadium with the roof closed and a huge racket, you know that you've got a lot of support and a lot of eyes on you. But does that support necessarily translate into making it easier for you to, to do your job and get out there and ride? And what with everything else that goes on for a Speedway rider... Here's Scott Nichols explaining why riding at Cardiff in particular, it's not as easy as it looks. Mentally, it would just be really tough. You know, I, I found it hard. I mean, it would be you've got the pressures of trying to perform to your best against the best in the world, which is enough pressure on that in itself. And then you walk out of that tunnel to the track and, and you look up and you just see this 
sea of flags of Union Jacks and St George's crosses and Welsh dragons and and you're just like oh my god like I've never never seen this many people at a speedway event before in my life and the noise is just phenomenal and and then you know that there's TV cameras there and there's all these people watching from around the world and there's no hiding every you ride like a plonker and it sticks out like a sore thumb you know you're going to get your rear end well and truly kicked so <laughs> there's a massive amount of pressure so mentally probably more than anything you're going in there just going oh my god and and I did struggle with that for some time in the Grand Prix as a, as a whole and um, it wasn't, you know, and I probably kind of learned a bit about the psychology side of things and, and how to deal with that probably a bit late on. And, um, that was something I, I struggled with. I think it's, um, that's a huge part of it. You know, um, it's, it's easy to say it's just any other race, but it's not, it's totally not. And, um, so yeah, for, for in that respect, Cardiff is, is something that is, is very enjoyable, but is the pressures and the the nerves associated with it early doors were um were not really that enjoyable in some respects what 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 was the thing that um played on your mind the most was it the fact that there were so many people watching or was it the uh, level of the competition that you were at what was what was your sort of inner fear really it's probably the amount of people there and the um knowing that all the eyes are on you as well. The other thing as well, especially at Cardiff is that every rider gets a brilliant reception there, which, which I think is great. You know, I think that's what's so cool about Speedway as a whole is it's a very family oriented sport, but you know, I'm even when you do the track walk um, before the meeting starts, you know, and the, the, the stadium is not knowing near full at that point because you were doing your track walk probably an hour or so before the actual meetings going to start. And it's, as you're walking around, the air horns are following you as you're walking around the track. And, and, and it, it was, it wasn't until I kind of learned the ability and, and the kind of the mindset of flipping that to your advantage and kind of using that as a kind of a support mechanism as opposed to a, a crippler, you know, mm. initially it was early do you like, Oh my God, all these people when you do so well. And, you know, it's lovely, but you're just like, oh my God, <laughs> I'm letting all, the, if I ride like an absolute plonker, I'm letting all these people down. And then there's all the people on TV. And, and so as much as, you know, that you're up against these amazingly talented riders who you were worried about trying to beat, um, I think it was a fact that there's so many people there watching you, wanting you to, to, to do well, that you felt really bad if you let them down as, as much as you, first and foremost, you don't want to disappoint yourself. Um, but it was so there is massive pressure, and you can understand why riders sometimes underperform in situations like that, or touch your tapes and get nervous because um, there's the pressure to to win, but it's also the, the pressures that they're feeling from the people that want them to do well. And although everybody there wants people to do well and is willing them on, it can actually have the adverse effect on some people if they can't flick that switch in their mind to use it to their advantage and such fine margins on the day as well you know you could move an inch and it, it could be all over for you it is massively game over and and also at places like cardiff because they're one-off events um the, the ruts at the start line get really really deep so um and because we have to be within a certain kind of margin away from the tapes you, you roll your bike back but because if you can imagine your your back wheel is on a rut so the bike is always trying to push forward anyway and we don't have brakes so you're trying to hold the bike back so the moment you kind of you know dip your clutch or slightly 
let the weight off the bike to try and anticipate any movement. The bike is naturally going to push forward even more than if you're on a flat surface. So all those things get accentuated and, and become more critical. And, and obviously in the Grand Prix, the refs are very vigilant. And, and uh, yeah, so you've got the start line is a huge amount of pressure. From episode one, that was Scott Nichols talking about the pressures of riding in front of such a huge crowd in Cardiff. Now, in episode two, I spoke to one half of Speedway's notorious double act, Tatum and Pearson. I'm going to speak to the other half before the end of this podcast. First, though, it was Nigel Pearson in episode two. And we talked, obviously, Speedway. We talked a bit about the likelihood of Bradford coming back. And we've obviously heard a bit more about that now. And um, we spoke a little bit about darts. But I asked Nigel how he got started in commentary in the first place. It's a very specific kind of job. Um, being a sports reporter and a very difficult job to, to make it big in as well. And obviously that journey had to begin somewhere. So how did Nigel's journey to being the voice of Speedway begin? Back in 1989, I'd just started my first full-time job as a writer with a newspaper in the West Midlands uh, County Express Group, which covered Halezo in Stourbridge and Dudley. And I started as a trainee sports writer. And within six months, they'd promoted me to sports editor. But at the same time, I was doing hospital radio and I was I was going to West Bromwich Albion games and covering it for DDHB, Dudley and District Hospital Broadcasting. <laughs> and um, at the same time, I sent demo cassettes off, you know, the TDKC 90 and all that. And I sent demo cassettes off to BBC WM, Beacon Radio and BRMB. Um, I think I did two games for WM when they were short and they gave me an opportunity, which was fantastic. But then George Gavin at BRMB gave me a call and said, how do you fancy Hales Owen Town versus Tranmere in the FA Cup on a phone line? So George booked me a phone line at Hales Owen, November 89, FA Cup. Still got the programme now. Um, and I did, I think, eight updates into Saturday Sport with George on BRMB. Um, and then... I did every weekend from there on. He, he just put me as part of the team. And I think within three weeks or there or thereabouts, I'd, I'd have to Google fixtures that year. But certainly on and around November or December 89, it gave me Manchester United versus Aston Villa at Old Trafford. Oh, hello. And <laughs> I just could not believe it. I, I, he rang me because there's no email then, no text messaging. Hi, Nigel, it's George. Fancy Old Trafford Saturday? Do I? What? Do I? So um, George gave me that opportunity and I'd started doing football every weekend, midweek as well. And I remember going to Scarborough versus Walsall on a Tuesday night. Uh, done, did the rounds, went to all the lower league grounds covering Walsall. That was on BRMB. So that was how the broadcasting started. Um, and then in 96, uh, a guy called Colin Wilshire uh, approached me for Beacon. They were going to revamp their sports coverage and actually start taking it seriously and, and do contracts with Wolves and West Brom to, to do commentary deals, which didn't necessarily go down too well with Tom at BRMB, Tom Ross at BRMB at the time, because um, not only was I moving away, but um, you know we were effectively in opposition, even though we were commercial radio together. Obviously, yeah. we're trying to build listeners up in Wolverhampton and Shropshire, uh, and Tom and BRMB had exclusivity with Birmingham Villa, you know. So it, that's how it moved on to to Beacon. Um, 
so I presented the sports show, I commentated on the sports show, and I did Monday to Friday breakfast sports bulletins from 6 a.m. until 10 a.m. Wow. Um, so it was, it was busy, but it was fun. And also after that then, um, Beacon, I'd just taken out a mortgage, and then Beacon decided to drop sport and get rid of me. That's commercial radio for you. There you go, Ian. There you go. I knew that would resonate somewhere. Um, the Then Talk Sport was just being launched. I started doing games when it was called Talk Radio back in the day. And then in 2000, they launched Talk Sport. And I asked one of the producers at Talk Sport, what does that mean then? He said, more work for you. So then that kicked on. And I'm still with Talk Sport to this day, 20 years later. And I've done... I look back on my time with Talk Sport with, with great pride because I've presented, I've commentated, I've read sports bulletins, I've done Formula One coverage. I was, I was the first commentator, uh, the first lead commentator on Talk Sport when they won national commentary, uh, when they won a national commentary uh, contract. Myself and Alvin Martin did a year, and then myself and Stan Collymore. Wow. Um, but then the TV had started kicking in, Ian, because I'd started doing Sky Sports Speedway. I was given meetings there, and then the, the boss of the Sky Sports Speedway team also was the boss of the Sky Sports Darts team. And he knew I'd been a fan of darts, because every time we poked up at a meeting, I'd talk about it. Great Premier League the other night, you know, match play was good, I watched that, that was brilliant. And then one day, he just, we were in a pub somewhere in London, and he just pulled me to one side. Right, Nigel, there's more darts coming in on Sky, do you fancy a dabble? And then in 2006, I went and did my first darts commentary at the Circus Tavern in Purfleet, in the last, the last World Championship to be held at the Circus Tavern, and I was probably more nervous than I have than I ever have been for anything in my life. And I started then, and I'm still with the Sky Sports Darts team to this day, with a wonderful team of people, and probably do 25 to 30 days of darts per year on the Sky Sports team. Great to be part of that team. So that's, in a nutshell, my broadcast career, how it evolved and where it's at now. It's Nigel Pearson from episode two and speaking to the other part of that uh, double act, Kelvin Tatum, before the end of this best of the guests for 2020. Episode three, I spoke to Speedway author Jeff Scott, who about 15 years ago set himself the challenge of visiting every single Speedway track in the UK through one season and chronicling this in, in a book called Showered in Shale. Since then, he's made a similar journey across Europe following the Speedway Grand Prix series at all the weird and wonderful locations that those events happen at. And um, here is Jeff talking us through some of the weird and wonderful quirks of Speedway in the far reaches of Europe. I've been to two lot, two years, two whole series worth of the Speedway Grand Prix, so I've been to all the tracks they have, and that often appears to be something like a sort of Duke of Edinburgh award scheme where you're they test your compass skills and your ability to get to remote locations in the middle of nowhere <laughs> in various sort of obscure European, newly European countries. Um, but looking at Sweden, I think, um, again, I don't want to culturally stereotype, but there is a sort of more community nature. Or, you know, people don't really try and stand out as the big I am in Sweden, I don't think, or Denmark. There's a very much... Um, everybody's roughly at the same sort of level. So a typical, as judged by the Speedway Grand Prix tracks, and I'd love to go around all the tracks in Sweden, um, they tend to be in a forest. 
they tend to be um, built with rain in mind because um, I don't think they're short of rain over there. Uh, and yeah, it has sort of more modest benching. I think it has a different range of shots. Last year when I was in Melilla, uh, they confiscated my water as I went in. And I said, well, what should I do for a drink? And the security man said, the water is so pure here, you can drink from the toilet. And while that didn't seem quite what I had in mind, <laughs> it was it was a good suggestion. Uh, um, I do, I think the biggest innovation I saw food-wise uh, in Sweden was, uh, again, at Melilla, where they have, they're selling the chips and the burgers, and then they have these, they were almost right in Speedway colour terms. They have like four udders hanging down. So in one, you've got tomato ketchup, the red one. You've got a white one for mayonnaise, and you've got the yellow one for mustard. And quite what, if they'd had an extra blue one, that would have just been perfect. But again, I don't suppose blue cheese dressing or whatever, that would have to be in that. I don't know if it'd be that popular. I can't imagine there's many Speedway fans that like blue cheese, really. Um, that's just a guess. Uh, looking, looking... Looking, say, at uh, Poland, I mean, everyone talks about how uh, wonderful, you know, Poland is, is a league on, uh, you know, that everyone's attracted to the riders from a finance and sponsorship point of view, but also from a crowd point of view. And, I mean, all Polish football clubs, speedway clubs, given the nature of sort of Eastern Europe and sort of Iron Curtain countries, uh, Soviet bloc countries, there was a lot of sort of community pride in your club. So if you were your the state or the local council would invest in their Speedway Stadia and give it to their football club or rent it out at bargain rates to people. So I think we talk about why don't we emulate what's happening in Poland, but we sort of misunderstand the sort of ownership basis of the stadiums because in the UK, we've always been sort of adventitiously involved with Greyhound tracks, rugby league tracks, and so on. Uh, the Reading club historian Arnie Gibbons has got a very good theory about looking at uh, the rise greyhounds arriving in the country in 1962 as one of the big drivers of new speedway tracks because you can't run greyhounds every night, so you need uh, events to subcontract to use to maximise the use of the stadium. Um, but coming back to, to more to your question, uh, yeah, I mean, I think. There's a certain shared language language and vernacular of Speedway, irrespective of the language that's spoken. I do think mm -hmm. at a club level, I'm not so sure at sort of more a glamorous big international event level because that attracts a different type of audience, um, although still an older audience. I think at a club level, there is very much, yeah, there doesn't seem to be too much difference. When, when I went to Germany, where um, I went to a couple of locations there, there seems to be a real thing of bringing your own swimming float along. And you think, well, that's a, that's a weird thing. But it turns out that they don't really have much seating. They tend to have sort of more rough-hewn stepped terraces. So anyone, right. so anyone in their right mind is going to bring their own swimming float or yeah. a deluxe version with sort of handles on the side. Got yeah, yeah. Um, Garden furniture, you can't really go wrong with that anywhere. Um, if you go to Halstavik in Sweden, it seems to be set in some sort of, I don't know, maybe a Game of Thrones. They could stage that there. It's a very rocky, outcroppy sort of place where, again, comfortable things to sit on is, is really the way to go. 
Jeff Scott from episode three explaining the need to take something comfortable to sit on if you're heading to mainland Europe to watch your speedway. 2020's Best of the Guests on Humans of Speedway and episode four, we spoke to one of Britain's most prolific speedway promoters. He's been involved in running speedway clubs for almost 30 years and mainly synonymous being the driving force behind Sheffield um, right from the uh, the early 90s um, to, well, about 10 years or so ago, was wasn't it now? Uh, and more recently at Leicester as well. It was a very interesting chat, this um, talking about not only running Speedway clubs, but also his relationship with Rob Wuffenden. Um, Neil Machin used to be Rob Wuffenden's mechanic and obviously is now the godparent of Britain's most successful ever Speedway rider, Ty Wuffenden. All that is covered in episode four. Um, but we're turning our attention to when Neil Machin took over at Sheffield and how really it took over with not a lot, including not particularly very many riders. <laughs> As you'll hear, that can be a bit of a problem. And um, certainly it's a bit of a problem when you sign riders and they kind of go a bit AWOL. Here is Neil Machin from episode four. Well, um, I'd, I'd have to say that um, going back to 94, 94 was an absolute commercial disaster. We were still as green as grass. We hadn't got anywhere near break even. We invested in the biggest signing that Sheffield could have made it at that time, a character by the name of Sean Moran. Um, Sean, um, to, to describe him by uh, or, or his situation um, as Tim Looking did, um, Sean, uh, with only a handful of meetings into the season, had a crisis of confidence. Um, I don't believe he's ever thrown his leg over a speedway bike since. Um, and um, a major setback, record signing, an enormous financial commitment. Um, Sean did a few meetings at home, uh, retired. Uh, we had no number one and we still owed, I don't know, 10 or 12,000 pounds on his transfer fee at the time. So um, 94 was a, a struggle. Uh, the same year, um, I transferred Rodney Calhoun from uh, Peterborough. Um, he did the season, halved his average and never came back. So that wasn't exactly the best investment we ever made. It's not, it's not stacking up. It's a very good season at all this, is it? Neil? 94 was a, <laughs> I, I'll tell you what, if you could get over 94, you could live with just about anything. We had stacks, lots of rain offs. We had to restructure the team. The brightest thing about 94 was bringing Greg Bartlett from um, West Australia. He was such a prolific uh, novice um, and I have to describe him that way because I'd actually witnessed him in West Australia done about three or four meetings at Claremont and we threw him straight into the into the league program here in in the UK um, and um, so he was the bright part uh, of 94 and, and we had stacks of rain off and um, actually something that people will find probably unbelievable in this era um, we uh, had eight outstanding fixtures to stage at, at home in October. And we were running Thursdays and Sundays and Thursdays and Mondays and Thursdays and Sundays, right through the month, never had a rain up, got through the whole thing and actually finished the last day of October on a Monday night with a Northern Riders Championship. I must have had some energy in those days. <laughs> and of course, Tim as well. You know, we, we must have had some energy in those days. <laughs> Two or three times a week, eh? 
Well, uh, at least uh, twice at home uh, during the month of October. Uh, and of course, we, had, we, all, we also had a smattering of, of away commitments to, uh, to undertake as well. So um, A94, commercially an absolute write-off. We, we'd spent the money. We had no Sean Moran. We had no Rodney Calhoun. Uh, but the brightest thing about it, of course, is that we did have, um, um, well, actually, we, I think I brought in three riders that year. Uh, Greg Bartlett uh, to start the season. Robbie Kessler came in later, who turned out to be a, an absolute gentleman to deal with and a prolific um, figure around Sheffield for many years to come. Um, and um, uh, George Stansel came, in, came into the equation. Of course, yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it was sort of um, a couple of steps forward and three going backwards, in a way, because of, obviously um, we didn't need to sign Rodney and Sean uh, and, and, um, and lose them in, within the first season, shall we say. Um, the investment in, in the other three, uh, Stansel, um, um, Robbie Kessler, and Greg Bartlett should have been the icing on the cake. They actually became the cake. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, 94, it was very testing times. Um, I think we probably just about got out of jail at the end of 94, but we had enormous uh, financial losses because, um, r really, because, um, you know, because of the money that we owed, we still, that was still remaining on, on bad transfers that we'd entered the, the market with. That's Neil Machin talking about life at Sheffield in the early days. And you can hear more about um, what it's like to run a club from Neil Machin in episode four. Episode five caught up with somebody that's been described to me as one of the most influential men in British Speedway. And that is Peter Oakes. Now, Peter Oakes is uh, a a reporter, a journalist, and has worked for some serious Fleet Street newspapers, but also with an interest in Speedway, became one of the most prolific Speedway reporters as well, writing for the Speedway Star ever since the late 50s and early 60s, and still is writing for them today. Um, he's also done every job I think there is to do, apart from being a rider. He's worked in PR, he's been a promoter, a team manager, and the personal manager of perhaps the greatest ever rider, Ivan Major. But how did that friendship come about? In 63, I um, first met Ivan. Um, I don't really, I can't, neither of us can actually remember the circumstances, but all I can remember was that his wife, Ray, um, I was living in Burnham Hall Psych in Diggs at the time, and I can remember Ray saying to me, look, you must come and have Sunday lunch with us. Um, you know, there I was, a uh, 18 year old living away from home and you know not you know what you sort of like at that age you don't exactly have the best things to eat and <laughs> you don't have your sunday lunch or no. no matter but ray asked me to go for, for sunday lunch. i'll never forget it because sunday lunch was a curry um, <laughs> of course <laughs> but you know, she, she, she they lived then at um upper chalton road which is in a or was in a very poor district of manchester in moss side and these these are all the houses that were owned by Mike Parker, who was, if the truth be known, a bit of a rackman that he, you know, he bought all old houses. He didn't do them up. He just basically, you know, rented them out. But he also provided these houses for all his riders. He had a lot of Australian 
and New Zealand riders who would come over and they would all literally live next door to each other in this little enclave in Upper Charlton Road. Um, all sorts of names. Um, they say Goog Allen lived there, Graham Coombs lived there, Bruce Ovenden lived there, Gary Peterson, the late Gary Peterson, who was killed at uh, Wolverhampton, he lived there, Murray Burt, who was another New Zealander, Jim Airy, uh, obviously the great Australian, Gordon Guasco was another Australian. You know, every, every rider that Parker brought in to Britain lived there. Toby Harrison, Swedish rider, lived there. And that was where Ollie Olsen first lived when he first came over to ride for Newcastle. Wow, what a, what a street. Abs well, it wasn't even a street. It was three houses, literally. <laughs> Blimey. Um, yeah, so so I, 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 I would go to the houses and, and obviously I, I would then spend all, all my spare time chatting to all these riders and, you know, getting the stories and features about them. If I look back at sort of 63, 64, the Speedway Star would, was, had, would have a feature almost every week that I'd, I'd written, which was nearly always about one of these riders <laughs> who were living in these houses because you could go and see them. I bet you wish it was still like that in some ways. It's so easy to just go and track them down, whereas now they're jetting here or there and everywhere. It's, um, it's a completely different days. Yeah, the the only thing that today has, at least as mobile phones. Yes. <laughs> that if you very much, like in the 60s, there were no such things as mobile phones. And very few of the riders, uh, or certainly not the, you know, the riders who came over from Australia and New Zealand, because they were always living on virtually nothing. You know, they didn't even have landlines, so you couldn't <laughs> phone them. But I had this great advantage of actually seeing them all on a regular basis and... Um, you have some really nice stories from those days. I, I can remember Jim Airy and Gordon Glasgow, who were you know, really great mates and travelled everywhere together. Um, you know, just being like sort of school kids when when it snowed on what must have been a March or <laughs> you know possibly even as late as April, and they literally had never seen snow in their lives. And you can imagine <laughs> that they suddenly see this snow. They'd obviously heard about it, but never seen it, and they really were like a couple of you know, eight or nine-year-olds wanted to go and throw snowballs at each Fantastic. other. Fantastic. <laughs> a lot of fun. And, um, you know, Ivan or Ray was the matriarch of them all, that Ray looked after all of them. Uh, and they obviously all, you know, went to Ivan for their advice. They all shared workshops. Um, and then the other great thing that that sort of, you know, taught me, that like, really, you wouldn't take a dog into these houses. Uh, Estates. I'm not saying that they weren't dirty because they were looked after by the people in there, but they were really run down uh, houses. And you, and you look there and you you see the actual background of the riders who went on to be very famous riders. In particular, you know Ivan and Ollie both went on to win your know, world titles, and you can understand how they kept their feet on the ground and how they were so determined and so ambitious and so hard-working because they literally pulled themselves up uh, from you know, what were basically uh, in a slum area. Mm -hmm. As I said, you, the houses weren't because the houses were, the rooms were beautifully kept and everything. But you know, it's really, I think it is nice to actually look back and see that these people never changed.
Peter Oakes there on the Humans of Speedway podcast from earlier this year. Best of the guests, 2020. And, you know, they've all been great um, episodes in in their own different ways. And um, another of my favourites, personal favourites, was a chat I had with um, a legend of so many British clubs, including Glasgow and Sheffield and um, Kings Lynn and Ipswich, and known for being an entertainer and a bit of a wind-up merchant on his day as well. But um, a lot of fondness for this guy across Speedway in Britain and hooked up with him at home in Adelaide, Australia, Shane Parker. And um, we talked about some of the antics he used to get up to uh, as a Speedway rider, both uh, during the meetings and um, occasionally stripping off as well. One of his party pieces, Naked Hot Laps. Take a listen. Yeah, being an entertainer, that was um, any testimonial or benefit meeting or uh, any sort of individuals or special meetings, I uh, I would always ask if they wanted naked hot laps, and if they wanted them, well, I would oblige. <laughs> so uh, I remember years ago seeing a picture of Brego doing it with a um, a sticker stuck on one of his butt cheeks. And uh, back in the day, you probably could get away with being totally naked, just boots and a helmet. But uh, I always used to run me box, so I was um, covered up and decent for the kids. <laughs> Safety first. Yes, I remember going to Boise's testimonial actually and going around Paul Speedway and I think I was only like um, two or three seconds off the track record or something. It might have not have been that close, but it weren't far off the track record. And Boise's come up to me, he goes, you're a bloody idiot, mate. What if you come off? (laughs) And I kind of sort of took that on board, but um, it didn't stop me. (laughs) (laughs) That would be quite incredible to break the track record naked. Would it stand? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I think it would be pretty limp at the time, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, that needs rephrasing. Yes. <laughs> but the the entertainment value is something I, I, I see that you, you were obviously pretty handy with a hose pipe, with um, centre green announcers and uh, promoters and so on as well. It's just putting on a show, like I said, banter, and I always had a lot of banter with Kevin Kevin Long, who was the announcer at Ipswich for quite a while. Um, apparently, I came in from a race one day and um, my mechanic turned around and said to me, he goes, Jesus, that commentator just ripped into you and give you heaps. And I said, did he? And um, so I thought, all right, no worries. So I thought I'd grab a bucket of water and stroll out to the infield and tip the bucket of water over him, which I did. I drenched him. And... Um, <laughs> He was standing there with a microphone in his hand anyway. I ended up getting pulled into the Ipswich office at the end of the meeting. This was after I'd rode for him, mind you. Um, <laughs> and uh, one of the promoters at Ipswich, Mike Weston, was trying to get me banned. He wanted to get me banned because I was, could have electrocuted Kevin Long with a microphone in his hand. And I turned around and said to Mike, I said, what, with a nine-volt battery in it, mate? I said, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> it was just, I guess that was his approach at the time, and I had a bit of a laugh about it and still do, actually. It was quite funny. But, um, no, it's, it's a bit of banter here and there. I actually remember winding a guy up at Newport Speedway. <clears throat> he was hanging over the fence and giving me a sign that I probably can't say. Um, so I went up to him and I started giving him a bit of lip back and he bent down and as of as he's come back up, he's got a big rock in his hand. So I thought, I'm out of here and I dropped my clutch and took off and I don't know whether he threw the rock at me, but it was pretty big and in his hand ready to go. 
At least you had the helmet on, or did you not have the helmet on? No, I had the helmet on, and it was pro- probably a good thing. <laughs> I, I try not to wind fans up too much. Probably the worst I wound somebody up. I might have probably gone a little bit too far with that one. And when you look at the uh, over your career and you look back at the stories and, and, and things that have happened over the time, what, what are the stories that sort of make you smile the most like those? Oh, geez, that's... That's that's difficult. I mean, probably the funniest one was um, another another one that involved Ipswich. Actually, I um, I was riding for Kings Lynn, and um, Buster Chapman was the team manager and obviously the owner of Kings Lynn. And we'd gone back to Ipswich, and obviously, having ridden from f- for five years, you know what they get up to. And I was watching the track to go round and. Every time Ipswich went off one and three, the grader rode over one and three. And every time it went off two and four, they'd roll two and four, pack it down. So I've clocked onto this pretty quick and um, trying to sort of tell the referee that what they were doing was wrong and it sort of didn't succeed. So I, um, a race had finished. I moseyed out in the middle and jumped into the tractor and tried to grade the track myself. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Bob, the grader at the t- the grader driver at the times, grabbed me by the collar and me leathers and tried to drag me out the tractor. And there's a bit of a scuffle went on. And uh, long story short, I ended up getting out. I couldn't get it in gear. I didn't realise there was two levers you had to use. So I, was, I went nowhere in the end and um, <laughs> got out the grader. And by this time, Buster's come running over and he's trying to stick up for me. And there was a whole heap of people around and I've just sort of headed off back into the pits. And... Um, I've turned around and I've seen a people, a round circle of people and Buster in the middle and arms flying left, right and centre and I left Buster to it. <laughs> <laughs> Just wash your hands and run off. Yeah, I did, I did. But um, I've actually got a, a clip out of the newspaper from that. It made the newspaper in Ipswich, so I always gave him something that was good for the, uh, for the local rag. Ever the entertainer Shane Parker on Humans of Speedway from earlier this year. I'm Ian Brannan. We're looking back at the best of the guests from 2020 and um, from one of the stars on the track to a star off the track, which is what the podcast is all about, really, because, yeah, there's there's the riders, but there's also these key individuals that without them, the sport wouldn't happen. And that's definitely the case when you're talking about referees. And um, early this year, caught up with one of the men in the box overseeing things, an FIM referee no less, Chris Derno, and spoke to Chris about what it is like to be a referee, how you go about becoming one in the first place, and the training that's involved. I mean, spoiler alert for you, the training is very thorough and goes on a lot longer than you'd imagine. Check out How to Be a Referee in the full episode. But right now, we're going to have a listen to Chris talking about some of the things that weigh heavily on a referee's mind. You probably straight away, you always, people might think the biggest decisions that a referee make is during a meeting, whether you've got to exclude rider A or rider B. Uh, it's not the biggest decision that a referee always will make is whether the meeting goes on or not. Uh, that is really puts you in a position where you've got a weather affected surface. Um, you know, and it's, it's really is the referee's decision at the end of the day, you've got to fully consider rider safety, but at the same time, if there is any way that a track can be um, rectified and worked on and improved, you know, you've got to sort of also have uh, consideration for the promotion as well, that, uh, you know, if, if at all possible, you know, attempts should be made. And, that, and that's where you really are caught piggy in the middle, where you may have one team, say a home team that are keen to ride and the away team absolutely steadfast against not riding. 
you know, and then you are caught in the middle of that and have to work your way through it. Um, talk to the riders as much as possible. Ask them if there's anything that can be done that can improve the situation. You know, do what you can to the track, you know, and see if anything can be uh, done to remedy that, you know, and then hopefully get it to the point where you are satisfied that sufficient work has gone on, that it, it would be safe to start. Uh, but then it is your call then, and then you go back up to that box and that first race in that sort of situation, your heart's in your mouth, you, you know, you hope you've got it right and uh, you've not caused any any problems or caused any extra uh, uh, safety risk to the riders. Um, but then obviously you start the meeting. So that that is always for me is, is sort of the toughest decision as against, you know, sort of racing decisions, which uh, you make your best judgment upon. I suppose with racing decisions, it's it's a straightforward black or white if it's in the rules or not, isn't it? Whereas if if a track's safe to ride, there's maybe a little bit more uh, interpretation of, of of opinion between different people on that one. Yeah, you're always you're always watching a race. Um, you know, you're almost judging all the time. You, you you're trying to. Um, see incidents start to happen before they happen. Um, so if, if two riders are, you know, in close contact, you, you're always focused entirely on that and you, you're trying to um, sort of understand, you know, quite often you think something's going to happen, it doesn't happen, but, you know, you've got an opinion of where the riders are at that position, who was in the lead, you know, who was challenging, who was, uh, you know, uh, in the in sort of um, contact with other riders, and then you you just got a level of experience then that you you make a, an understanding, you know what was the primary reason for the incident that happened, and then make your judgment on that based on that and the rules and the regulations. And what about the difficult moments when it comes to keeping an eye on the racing? I imagine there's some fun moments there as well. Oh, yeah. It's it, again, it's it's always quite difficult when you get two races in in in, in a single heat. You may have two riders battling out of the front and two at the back, and it's always where you, you, you glance in between the two different, uh, you know, racing pairs, you know, and you may be focused on the sort of the leading pair and something may have happened on, on the sort of the rear pair. And then you've got to try and sort of analyse what you last saw, where they were, and uh, try and understand, you know, what you think caused the issue and, and sort of make that judgment call. It was a fascinating episode, the chat with Chris Turner. If you ever wondered about the sort of things that uh, a referee does, and I say how to become a referee as well. Um, all of that demystified in the episode with Chris Derno from earlier this year. Now, somebody who works very closely with referees these days is uh, a former star of Reading and Newport, and now the man who is the ringmaster of the Speedway Grand Prix. The FIM Speedway GP race director, Phil Morris, joined us uh, early this year on Humans of Speedway to talk about his career and his role, and of course, specifically, the stuff that he has to look after with the Grand Prix. And I think when you look at slick meetings and presentation of meetings, the Grand Prix series is the benchmark. And so what work goes in to ensure that those meetings run like clockwork because you've got to remember the Speedway Grand Prix not only a Speedway meeting but it's a TV show as well shown right around the world here's Phil talking us through some of his duties building up to a GP once a year I meet with every organizer clerk of the course normally in February we spend a day going through how we expect A to be done B to be done X to be done Y Z we want the show to look the same, whether it's in Cardiff or in Timbuktu. Apart from the stadium, we want the show, we want the feel, 
we know how it's working. I, I, I can tell you, we had 10 Grand Prix last year, and apart from one of them, they all finished within five minutes of each other from heat wow. one to 23. And that, that's around about two hours, 20 minutes. But, but going back to what we say, we've got a big, heavy work manual, and all a promoter, whether it's Torrent, whether it's Prague, they can go through that book. And as long as they follow that book, it's pretty much laid out in front of them. So for me, British Speedway should be having somebody do a, a, work, a work manual that everyone follows. So it's the same everywhere. Start the same. They do this the same. They do that the same. Four heat grade. And, you know, the grade should only be six minutes long. And all these things, if you put it in place and everyone starts learning from it, but it's very difficult when you, you've got British Speedway where they'll probably say, well, you shouldn't come and tell us what to do. Instead of thinking, let's do it for the benefit of the sport. Um, and yeah, I, I'm lucky to be involved in the Grand Prix. I'm very privileged to be involved in it. But I see what goes on behind that goes, lots of things go wrong. The people, as long as people don't see it in the crowd or on the TV, we've done our job. So it's, it's about minimizing the fault and the problems behind the scene and so not covering them up, making sure they are fixed before it's it's known to the crowd in a sense. Yeah, it's that great sort of live event situation of trying to present a, a graceful swan on the surface, but you yeah. can not see the legs <laughs> kicking like mad underneath the water. No, you just you just you guys like yourself, you just talk a bit more and they can but no, it, it's very difficult to you know, we do a production meeting at every Grand Prix. Uh, and when we're looking at timing, we're not talking at hours or minutes, we're talking seconds. So yeah. at, you know, at 7.03 and 30 seconds, this will happen. At 7, because I know at 7.03 and 50 seconds, riders get pushed off. That's my first thing that I work off. So, yeah. and, and people don't realize that these, these attention to small details, it, it just it's just once you've got it, ingrained it becomes normal and i can promise you the riders actually get used to it you know we do four races bang 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 and we have a six or seven minute gap so they know you know where they've got to be they know how it works the riders know what's happening and and once everyone knows what's happening it becomes normal and, and it, it's not difficult to do but i just feel a good solid sort of blueprint that every track does xyz it helps because everybody knows when you go to whether it's Birmingham, whether it's Poole, whether it's Edinburgh, whether it's Berwick, wherever you go, the show will be the same. Of course, you have different riders. Let's try it. You know, I'm not, and I'm not preaching you because, you know, it's not my job. I'm luckily I'm involved in the Grand Prix. Um, but yeah, you look at Poland, the reality is they followed what the Grand Prix have done. But you look at a lot of the things, they've got a work manual, they do things at this time, at that time, this has to be done, then that has to be done. And it all falls into place and looks a better product, in my opinion. And really the whole production needs to be well-timed because you've got TV and, and TV demand specific timings. You know, TV stations and TV programmes run by the second themselves anyway, so they're going to expect a meeting like this to, to follow the same guidelines? Yeah, obviously with the TV, you know, we, we've got a three-hour start-to-finish schedule. And uh, I can assure you, nobody wants to go past three hours because you know, some countries are going to lose a feed and things like that. So 
touch wood, which I'm doing right now. We've not failed with that one yet in, in five years of being involved. Of course, this is why sometimes I can be a little bit in front and then I'll, I'll in a sense, I'll choke the event back a little bit because it's going so good. But you only need to have one crash, which breaks two airbags, you know, the air fence, and that's a 20 minute delay, 15 minute while they change them. So it's, it's, it's about working and knowing the things and, and feeling it in a sense. But yeah, I, it's, it's all linked to being a professional show. And I think we've got a very professional show in the Grand Prix and I'm proud of it. FAM race director Phil Morris there talking about um, some of the things that go into making sure that the Grand Prix series runs like clockwork. Now, in episode nine in September, um, I caught up with somebody who is a, a familiar face around Speedway tracks and a familiar voice as well, because he does centre green announcing at some of the um, Ben Fund meetings and uh, also the voice of Newcastle and Redcar and has been the voice of a few other tracks as well uh, in the time. Roy Clark is the guy. Um, now, Roy, as a youngster, had dreams of becoming a a speedway rider, uh, and he was a speedway rider, rode for the uh, Felton Flyers in the northeast, and has done a lot of work with Newcastle as well. I think he's done pretty much every job there is to do for the Newcastle Diamonds, including being team manager uh, for a time briefly uh, as well. Um, but one of the other things that Roy does or has done is provided a place of uh, accommodation for a number of riders either British-based ones that just happened to be stuck in the northeast and needed a place to kip, or particularly the foreign stars that come over to Britain and um, and find themselves leaving Denmark or Sweden or wherever behind and finding themselves in the middle of Newcastle. Um, Roy has helped these riders integrate into uh, northeast life, um, and here in the episode that I did with him, he talks about what it was like sharing his house with some well-known names of Speedway. Certainly with the Danes, we're very similar, you know, because when, if you look back in history, um, when the Danes came over, uh, they sort of landed in the northeast here. Um, and some of our words that we use, in, like Geordie words, like Gang Yen, <laughs> it's like going home in Geordie. It's the same in, in uh, Danish. It, Danish is for going home, is Gang Yen. It's not, really? It is. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, um, it, I've, I've got to remember, you know, when Bjarne Pedersen first came over, Bjarne uh, could hardly speak English. So um, Bjarne ended up with very much a, a jolly accent, but after the two years, he left here. But, uh, you know, <laughs> great times, you know. The problem was with the house as well. It, it's not the same deco as what it is now because I hadn't been moved in long. And the previous person who had my house was a, was a young lady and everything was pink. So this house got known as the Pink Palace for, for a lot of years. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I, th I think we've got very much the same sort of like mentality as well, you know, sort of like very friendly and things like this. So, yeah. um, you know, we got on great. You know, I... I when um, Kenneth B.S. stopped at my house, you know, I wouldn't just have Kenneth for some weekends, you know, Lassa would be here as well, who's, you know, Lassa was only about five or six at the time when he, when he came over to, to stop. Um, I'd have his, his dad, Ivan, stop in here. Uh, you know, Kenny Larson's dad used to stop here um, quite a few times, and which was quite funny because uh, we'd, we'd have a... Peter and I would have a little drink in the house, and it was uh, one morning, 
Kenny came downstairs and he came running back upstairs. He says, Roy, you've got to come down and see see me dad. And uh, came downstairs and he, his dad was lying on my settee and he was cuddling me Dyson vacuum cleaner. <laughs> so so, so we, we called him Dyson from then onwards. <laughs> it all happens at the Pink Palace. It all happens at the Pink Palace, yeah, yeah. yeah. And these are the stories I can't tell you. There's a lot I can't tell you. Yeah, well, that's right. We want to protect the names of the uh, of, of the innocent and the guilty. Exactly, uh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, exciting. it must have been good, though, because for the, for the riders finding somewhere to stay, I mean, I, I guess some of them around the country would find, you know, maybe a B&B to, to, to live at or, or whatever or some kind of guest house. But to, to share a house with somebody who's involved in the sport and actually knows a little bit about, you know, speedway bikes, engines, track craft and, and all that kind of stuff must have been... You know, good good for both of you, really, to 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 be able to enjoy conversations like that. Yeah, it, it was. I've also got um, a large collection of videos and uh, DVDs of different tracks all over the country, um, so you know it was it was a common place for them to sit and watch a meeting before they'd go to an away track just to see what the track was like. Ah. So they weren't going in sort of like totally blind. Mind you, I think I regretted it when I showed a couple of the riders meetings from Exeter when they said. Oh, that's big. That's bumpy. I says, wait till you see the safety fence. It's steel. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, old school safety fence. Um. So, and and you were a mechanic for some of these riders as well. Yeah, I've I've, I've spanned for a lot of riders. Um, I didn't particularly span for Bjarne and Kenneth, even though they lived with me, because at the time I was mechanic for Jesper Olsen, um, who was captain of Newcastle, um, another Dane, who's actually just recently moved back to Denmark, uh, him and his wife and uh, his daughters have moved moved back to uh, Denmark. Um, up till recently, he's been living in Bedlington, just up the road from here. Mm. And uh, me and him have you know, kept in touch. We uh, we we were known as the old rockers by his uh, by his wife because we used to go down, out to gigs and uh, have a have a, a blooming good time listening to music. That's Roy Clark on Humans of Speedway from early this year, uh, friend of the stars in uh, in the northeast. Um, from one centre green announcer to another, uh, the voice behind the mic at Ipswich Speedway and has been for a long time. The man in the white suit. Kevin Long joined us on Humans of Speedway early this year as well. Uh, at the time, he was gearing up to be the um, man in the middle for one of the only matches to uh, actually have people in attendance, or at least that was supposed to be the way, with uh, the British final that was due to be hosted there. Obviously, that didn't actually happen in the end, sadly. But um, we spoke to Kevin about how he um, came to be the voice of Ipswich. He's been doing it since that great season in 1998 that Ipswich had, and um, still doing it now. And how did that that journey begin though and how do you become a centre green announcer here's kevin long when we sort of started going away on coaches and stuff like that and i remember in the 97 season we would go to all the meetings away uh our, our supporters club at Ipswich very active in, in arranging uh, away meetings and um we'd be away and you know we'd have such a laugh and a joke on the coaches and, and you know, people were saying to me, oh, you know, you'd be good on the centre green. Why didn't you sort of get get on the centre green? And I was like, well, I don't even know how to do it, you know, let alone, you know, how to, how to even get the job. And we were away. I remember we were away watching the witches at Bellevue. We were away on a weekend tour. And we actually were staying in the same hotel as the riders and the management. 
And um, when we all got back to the hotel, we're sort of having a drink in the bar and, and we're sort of sitting around. And, and I was having a conversation with John Louis, uh, obviously one of the promotional team at the time, and said, oh, you know, I could do that job. And he's like, well, he said, we're, we're sort of committed to what we're doing now um, for 97. He said, but who knows what we might do next year? Um, and that was all that was sort of mentioned about it. But it was towards the end of the 97 season, the supporters club invited me to present their end of season event. Um, you know, where you get together, riders, rider rewards are doled out and uh, everyone gets together for an end of season bash. Most clubs have them and, you know, it's highlight of the end of the season. And so they invited me along to uh, present the end of season awards uh, in the evening. And so I put a lot of work into that and a lot of research and uh, things. And um, unbeknownst to me that the promotional team at the time of uh, John Louis, his then wife Magda Louis and Mike Weston used it as a, an audition. You know, it's a bit like X Factor for Speedway presenters. You know, <laughs> they just didn't have just didn't have the, the red buzzers in front of them. And I didn't realise that they were watching my performance inverted commas to such an extent that with an eye to inviting me to take the job uh for 98 and that's exactly what happened at the end of the evening they said yep we we like what you did and we'd like to invite you to be the center greek presenter for the 1998 season so you know that was that was amazing and and for a lifelong fan of speedway um to actually get that job and you've got to remember that john eerie through the halcyon days of the sport, you know, the 60s, 70s and the 80s. I mean, John is is regarded quite rightly as, as the best ever centigrade presenter um, to sort of follow. Oh, we didn't follow John's footsteps immediately. There were a few in between. Uh, Rob Chandler, who is a, a local um, radio presenter, did it for a few seasons and had various other sort of people giving it a go. Um, and with no broadcasting experience whatsoever, I've never worked in broadcasting, to sort of just be a fan off the terrace has given a microphone to uh, to do the job was, uh, yeah, yeah, life. I, I wouldn't say it was a lifetime ambition because I'd never really thought about doing it up until that sort of point. But, um, yeah, that was that was the first year, 98, and um, never looked back, really. <laughs> The voice of Ipswich, the man in the white suit, Kevin Long on Humans of Speedway. As we look back on the best of the guests from 2020, and um, we spoke to an author, Helen Charlesworth, earlier this year. Now, Helen is um, a big fan of Speedway, first and foremost. She's a big Speedway historian and has got some great stories uh, about the history of uh, Speedway and some of the things that people got up to in the very, very early days that you can hear in the full episode that we did with Helen. Um, but she's also an author as well and has written a couple of novels based around Speedway and based around a couple of writers you might recognise the names of. Um, Jason Doyle. Did you know that he was a star of a Speedway-based novel? Neither did I till I spoke to Helen Charlesworth. Here she is talking about them. I wrote books that I wanted to read. Um, I've, I've read a lot of books on Speedway, but most of them, you know, they're either autobiographies, biographies or facts and figures. And I really wanted to read a story. So why not write one yourself? And I also, because I like um, history, time travel, a whole lot of it, bag it up together. 
So these stories are about two teenage boys, Joel Armstrong and Will Roberts, and they both share a love of Speedway, but it's in different eras. Uh-huh. So in the first book, well, in both of them, Jason Doyle is Joel's all-time Speedway hero. Okay. But when, but when he mentions this to Will, Will said he'd never heard of Jason. His favourite rider was Cordy Milne, and he first watched Speedway in 1936. So the story basically is Joel had gone to spend a week summer holidays with his grandparents in Plymouth. And while his grandfather was doing some renovations, he came across a small glass lens, likely from an old-fashioned pair of wireframe spectacles. And this lens becomes Joel's portal to the past, sorry, his key to the portal to the past. Um, his grand sends him off to deliver something to a friend in the next street. But that is also part of the portal. So every time he goes to this house, he goes through the portal. But of course, when he goes through, he's not meeting the lady he's supposed to. He goes through and he meets this boy, Will. It's Will's house in the 1940s. And at first he thinks this whole 1940s thing is a big hoax. But soon realises that when he sees the Luftwaffe bomb damage for himself and gets caught up in the blitz, that this is real. And he begins to make regular visits to the past. So he is visiting a friend, but they don't realise that he's going back in time to meet him. Yeah. Yeah. So um, prior to his visits to the past, Joe's always been a bit of a dreamer. He's always imagined himself with Jason Doyle, you know, the really good buddies. They're travelling to away meetings. He's helping him out in the pits. And even when he's in Water on Plymouth, he still daydreams about Jason a lot. Okay. And and, and, uh, is uh, is Jason Doyle aware that he he features as a character in in one of the only Speedway novels that that certainly I know of? Yes, he does. He does? (laughs) Yes, Jason is aware. And also a few other writers play key roles in it. Oh, okay. Who else is in it then? Well, we've got some from the past. Um, George Pepper, Bluey Wilkinson... So, but I've had Adam Roynan and Tim Webster and Matty Bates all give me permission to have them play themselves in the book. Wow, okay. Yeah, so they are characters and they're aware. They've, they've got the books, they, they know that they're in there. Yeah, a few of the writers get minor starring roles, Ben Morley, Nikki Pedersen. It's not a book about name dropping. There's no, a no, specific no. reason that they're in there. They're in there for a reason, you know. Yeah, I, I was just, I was just wondering if you know if, if they were aware that they're in it, and that, and obviously they oh. are. So, um, and and what was their reaction when you when you asked um, you know, Adam Roynan and uh, and Jason Doyle and the like if 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 they minded having their names in in the book? Well, Jason, I didn't tell him till just before I was going to publish it. But I said, <laughs> if, you, if you don't want to be in, you know, then. I'll change it, but I didn't hear back, so I'm presuming he's quite happy with it. <laughs> okay. And I know he's he's retweeted things, you know, that mention the book, so he's obviously happy with it. Okay, and yeah. He's a wonderful character in it. He is the hero. Okay. Um, Adam, great, yeah. Adam, Tim, Matty, brilliant. Yeah, they, I think they're quite honoured to be in it. Yeah, it's you know, it's an unusual thing to to be part of, I suppose, isn't it? As well, and uh, oh. a bit of uh, immortality for them in uh, in literature. Oh. Definitely. Okay, and and these books are available now. Let's let's get on to the shameless plug section uh, because uh, if people want to read your your Speedway novels, um, how do they get hold of them? Um, they're both available. I saw my other books on Amazon, and you can buy them as a paperback or as a download. And as a download, you don't have to have a Kindle; it can be to a mobile phone, a computer, whatever. 
Okay, and if you just search out Helen Charlesworth uh, on uh, yeah. on Amazon, all your books should probably come up, I would think, yeah? Yeah, they will do, yeah. Now, they say, don't meet your heroes. And in episode 12, that was certainly a danger because I managed to arrange a chat with um, the 1992 world champion, Gary Havelock. Now, growing up, I was a Bradford fan. I used to go along most Saturdays to watch the Dukes. Obviously, Gary was the captain of Bradford in 1992. He became the world champion, as I mentioned. And, you know, it was he was a bit of a Speedway hero of mine at the time. And I was a little bit nervous about it. And I had to give him a ring beforehand to arrange it. And, and I rang him. And as soon as I spoke to him on the phone, I knew it was all going to be good. Uh, because you know what you what you hear is what you get with with Javi, and it was a great episode, a great chat that we had, and check it out for yourself in full, uh, episode twelve. But here's Gary Havelock talking about becoming world champion in 1992 and the lead up to that and the actual meeting itself <laughs> and, uh, yeah he doesn't hold back but you know it, it was a, a brilliant achievement for Javi back in the days when the world final was a one-off and um, there was no way that he was going to allow for that meeting to be rerun shall we say here is Gary Havelock I saw many interviews and that people said oh first world final it'll all be great Great, um, you know, uh, experience and all that, as you said, didn't it? Your first world finally go there for experience. And I was like, fuck that. Excuse me, like, <laughs> fuck that. I ain't going for experience. I'm going to win. Uh, I'd beaten every single one of them riders over several times in the league. So in my mind, there was absolutely no reason whatsoever why I couldn't beat them again. And there was no guarantee that you'd ever get to another world final. You don't know, no, do you, at no, that time? Absolutely not, no. Like I say, I, I always dreamed of being world champion. I never dreamed of being the best speed rider ever. don't know why. All I ever dreamed of was just of being the world champion. Um, I think that probably hindered me for a few years after I won it, maybe, you know, psychologically. Um, sort of thinking, oh, what am I going to do now? Like, you know. You'd achieved the aim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's dream that had been you know the last 20 years of my life uh had been achieved at such a young age but uh ah, there you go and how how was it then i mean because through that through the course of that evening obviously this was back in the days when it was a one-off world final everybody starts uh-huh. on on yeah. zero and stuff and you know it yeah. could be could be won and lost in 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 one heat or or not well, it, depending what happens, it but... was because my first race i was against per Johnson and i won it and he came last <laughs> well mm. that certainly uh makes a difference doesn't it yeah it does yeah, it does. It makes Simple all the that. difference. And like you look back to the fact that gate four was a massive advantage in them early heats there. And um that being drawn at number eight, which is heat two, gate four. Thank you very much. You know, another yeah. day, another track. It could have been fucking graveyard and I could have got filled in full of full of mud like Per did and end up running the last, but uh, uh it is what it is. And then it started. It started raining. And then it came down thunder and lightning for about fucking half an hour, didn't it? And the track was flooded from, literally, from the curb to about three quarters of the way out. The track was flooded. And uh, I remember Miss Shearer, a couple of the other riders were running around the pit saying, "Like, why don't we just get it cancelled? We we'll just get it cancelled. We'll all come back tomorrow and start again." And I was like, "Fuck that!" <laughs> Damn I've right. already done the hardest bit. It's beating Permi first ride as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Like my leg, my leg was hurting because a bike ran into me, and uh, but I was like, "Nah, let's go, let's do it. <laughs> We're racing." Yeah, race on, and uh, and then that that heat where it when it was all confirmed. I mean, you know, what were the emotions? Heat uh, yeah, heat seventeen. Yeah, and like you were up say, against Mitch Shearer in that heat, weren't you? I think. I don't know. I think it was yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I only need the first or second um, to be certain. Um, and um, I remember just before going out for the race, I remember nearly nearly being physically sick in my helmet. Um, there was just so much emotions going on. My mechanic, as we see me, my mechanic's hands shaking like a dog shit and razor blades, and <laughs> my dad shouting something in one ear, and Neil was just shouting something in the other ear, and I'm thinking, I started spinning on I mean, it, fuck, you know. And I was thinking, just, oh, I should just open that gate. Finally, the gate opened, and I like, pushed off, and then sort of gave myself a proverbial slap around the chops, and uh, sort yourself out. And uh, I actually think that was the best start I've ever made. Um, in my last round, well, final, um, it was off gate two. It wasn't one of the favourable gates. Um, but the, the when they filmed it, they filmed it from the front. And normally from the front, you can't see when somebody's made a good start. You have to be sort of from the side. Um, but you could even see it from the front. You could even see it from the front. In fact, in this day and age, it was one of them that had probably pulled it back. You reckon? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, at least they didn't. And, and no. you, yeah, you made a, a great start. You were definitely first to the, the first bend. And then you were kind of like long tracking it, weren't you? Sort of down oh, the back well, straights. Really yeah. funny, actually, because uh, somebody put something on Facebook the other day. And because um, of all this talk about the way Smarzik rides his bike and that. And yeah. Like, oh, yeah. The way he hangs off the back. His ass is over the back wheel. He's trying to get as much traction as possible. And I was thinking. I used to do that. Nobody says, says that. I mean, was it? So it might be even me and Peter Lawks or somebody like that put someone on Facebook apparently uh, over the weekend about uh, uh, he wasn't the first, Harry was the first sort of thing. Oh, and yeah. A p- picture of me at Vatslav, slam tracking it. Yeah, you sort of tucked in as, you yeah, know, yeah, as yeah. fast oh, as you can oh, go. Yeah, yeah well, it, this is like I've got to ride my bike the fastest, the fastest I've ever ridden it ever. Yeah. So, Every last ounce of straight line speed, whatever, I was going to try and try and, try and nick it. <laughs> and you, you said about crossing the finish line and and mm. sort of the, not having sort of a, a massive amount of motion. You weren't punching the air no, and stuff I like that. I didn't know whether I would. Have, I didn't know whether I'd have done a wheelie over the line and punched the air. Don't I didn't do anything. Mm. <laughs> I just rode over the line and then just put me put my head down on my handlebars and just like trundled round in a complete. Uh, whirlwind of emotions and feelings and just insane really insane and then you, uh, you get to lift the trophy and all that and, and when at what point does it really sink in because I imagine it's all like one of these occasions that sort of whizzes by and it's only like the days God, afterwards yeah. where it, it yeah, sort yeah. of you think whoa bloody hell what have I done mm-hmm. well I uh, I remember I got picked for the drug test as usual and um, I remember it was that hot that I must have just sweated like every last bit of liquid out of my body, right? So straight afterwards, they told me the drug test. So I'm like, I'm drinking water, I'm drinking beer, I'm just trying to get liquid forced into me. Took me about an hour, over an hour to do it, didn't it? And uh, then they were like, you got to come to the press conference. Mm-hmm. They've been waiting for you. <laughs> so I've got took over like the press conference. So I've got me, got me leather tied around my waist in a knot. Right, <laughs> I've got a fag in one hand and a can of lager in the other hand. I walk into the press conference. There's about 150 people in this big room waiting for me. Ah, <laughs> 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 uh, it was uh, yeah. To say it was bizarre it was uh, it was uh, understatement. 
Excellent chat with Carrie Havelock. Uh, listen for yourself. It was episode 12 and uh, it was brilliant. I'm Ian Brannan. This is the best of the guests from 2020 on Humans of Speedway. And um, next was another world champion, but not a Speedway world champion. BDO, former world darts champion, Scott Mitchell joined us. Now, Scott, as well as being a prolific darts player, is also a prolific Pool Pirates fan. And so it was great to uh, talk to him about, well, darts and Speedway. And how maybe if things had been a little bit different, there's a chance that he could have been a Speedway rider himself. He gave it a shot. It didn't quite work out, but he certainly had a motorbiking background. Here's Scott Mitchell. Is it right that you, though, were you into your motorbikes in general and, and you were sort of into motocross as a youngster? Yeah, yeah. Well, we, we I mean, down, down, down south, we had this, um, a couple of friends of mine used to ride schoolboy motocross and... Um, they, that I would go with them as sort of like eight or nine or ten and, and watch them riding motocross. So I was into motocross as well. And um, one of them actually was Mark Seabright. Uh, he was a friend of mine at 10 years old and now spanners for doily. So uh, <laughs> uh, it, it's quite strange. And he had a grass track career. And um, uh, Jeff Wiltshire was Southern Centre champion, a grass tracker, and, uh, you know, 10 or 12 years older than me. And uh, they used to live one in, our far- live in one of our farmhouses. His father did. So... Um, there was just an everything around me, and uh, Pete, Pete Monday, God rest his soul, uh, lived about a mile away from our farm, and he used to come down and test his bikes back in the 60s on my granddad's farm. You know, there was nowhere to test bikes, speedway bikes then, so he used to come down on a grass field, and, and Pete used to test them there, you know. So, um, you know, I, I suppose I had no choice uh, that, that, that speedway was always going to be kind of the number one sport for me and, and probably always will be. But with your background in motocross, obviously an interest in bikes in general, did you never consider giving Speedway a bash at all? I mean, could you have been the 2015 World Speedway champion instead of darts? No, I'm, if you've not seen me on the telly, I'm a bit of a lump really. So I, I'll be honest <laughs> with you, I have the figure for a dart player, but not for a Speedway rider, to be totally honest. So um, I rode, I made right across from probably 18 till about 24. And then when we had the children, um, you know, I was blatting up a straight on, on one, and there was there was Katie, my daughter, three or four months old, waving at daddy, going up the straight flat out in fifth gear. And I thought, if I crash now, the wife's not earning, I'm the only one earning. Um, we've got a house to the job. Uh, this is this is starting to take too many more risks than I need to be taking here. So uh, that's and and the fact that I'd sort of did some some 500cc sort of amateur AMCA British Championship qualifiers and. Uh, failed to qualify for the top 40 in the country so I kind of knew that I wasn't good enough I was, I was daft enough I just wasn't fast enough so um and, and I wasn't <laughs> committed enough probably you know I I didn't want to go out running every night and all that sort of thing to make me as fit as a top guy so um you know things happen for a reason and and uh yeah well, I just decided to, to to knock it on the head and I've been in every hospital in the south of England you know and, and you start going to hospital and they go oh, hi Scott at the emergency ward when you're going in again um it it kind of you know and dad was at home going what am i going to do with you i've I've had a sort of like an ankle in cast and 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 he's put me in the tractor and gave me and 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 strapped my leg up because i had to have my leg elevated so he strapped my leg up to the steering column in my tractor and i've gone off silaging for the day and he's given me a a bottle and said i said i can't get out and go to the toilet and he's given me a bottle and said well there you go you'll be able to empty that out the window every couple of hours and i thought thanks dad so it was getting to the point where I was getting injured and it was affecting my work as well. So, um, you know, it, it was time. But at 24 years old, I matured myself to say I'm not doing it anymore. 
That's Scott Mitchell, who swapped motorbikes for darts and became world champion at that, and probably a lot safer, you'll have to say. The most recent guest on Humans of Speedway was a man who needs little introduction to Speedway fans in the UK and probably further afield as well. Um, Not only was he a prolific rider, but um, three-time world champion at long track, and he's got his new book out as well called Tales from the Top Draw. And we had a peek inside that book to some of the tales that Kelvin uh, has shared. And um, we looked particularly at uh, one season, which was the 1985 season. You've got to remember at this stage in Kelvin's career, he's not long been riding Speedway, only doing it a few years or so, and he found himself in a world final representing his country and um, really really in at the deep end and um, here he is talking about that massive season for him in 1985. Yeah well I rode in three world finals in 85. Um, I rode in the pairs the team and the individual final at Oddsall and so that again that happened quite quickly. I sort of came away from Wimbledon and the second season at Wimbledon I'd missed a large part of the season with a broken leg so effectively, I'd done not very much racing and suddenly I was riding in three world finals, riding with Kenny Carter in the pairs final and then ended up being, uh, I think, the only British rider to be in the world final at Oddsall. Um, yeah. So it was quite, and joining Coventry all at the same time. It was a, it was a, wow, I, I, when I was just talking about it now, it was quite an incredible season. Yeah, the 85 World Final, I think you were the only British show because yeah. I remember, well, I don't remember. I was there, but I can't quite remember it. But mm. having looked back on footage since, there were um, people holding up massive banners for Kelvin Tatum and stuff. I mean, rock star kind of treatment, wasn't it? Um, yeah, it was a bit overwhelming, to be honest, Ian. And in truth, it all happened rather quickly. Um, I wasn't quite prepared for that. And I think I could have done with somebody like a, a Michael Lee, a Kenny Carter, one or two more established riders to have been in that world final. Just to take because, the, the heat off, off the attention. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I wasn't ready for that, you know, to, you know, because I was the only British rider in a British held staged world final. I mean, uh, and I'd only been riding for two and a half years. So it was difficult to come to terms with all that attention, to be perfectly honest. Kelvin Tatum, it's his first world final. The heavy responsibility is on his shoulders as the only Englishman here at Bradford. His fast gating could be the key to his success. Tatum in his first world final on the inside, the crowd on their feet and up to the first corner. And it looks like the Russian has gone and so too is Tatum. has had a terrific start. Tatum in front, second place is Muller, third place is the Russian at the back, it's Castagna. Well, what a start for Kevin Tatum, almost overcooks the pits corner, but he's in front, 21-year-old, former public school boy, he's been getting in trim with his mum Janet, she's a gymnastic uh, instructor, has been doing aerobics on the lawn, certainly has a full stretch here, is going into the last lap, 338 metres around Oddsall, and it is Tatum in front for England, then in second place Muller, in third place it's the Russian, and the Italian way at the back. Quite a start for Calvin Tatum. He's going to win his first ever world final race with the crowd on their feet. Three points to Calvin, two for Egon Müller, one point for the Russian. And, and a crowd as well of, I'm not sure how many were there, but it must have been at least forty or 50,000. Um, yeah, it was, a, it was a terrific turnout. And yes, it was uh, a nerve-wracking occasion. Um, and one that I think that if I just had one or two other Brits with me that could have just taken a bit of attention off of me, I could have enjoyed a little bit more. 
As you mentioned, though, not your only world final in 1985. There was the um, world pairs as well. And you look at the lineup for that, it was incredible. It was a, a who's who of Speedway at the time, really. Denmark with Eric Gunderson and Tommy Knudsen. Uh, England with uh, yourself and Kenny Carter, as we just mentioned. Uh, United States, Bobby Schwartz, Sean Moran. New Zealand, Ivan Major and Mitch Shearer. I think that was Ivan Major's last appearance in a New Zealand jacket, at the very least. Um, Sweden, Jan Andersen, Per Jonsson, Australia, Steve Regling and Phil Crump, and Poland, Gregor Jizowski and Andrei Hushka. Andrei Hushka, yeah. Andrei Hushka was quite a character, actually. He rode until he was 50. And uh, <laughs> wow. he was he was a proper he was a proper bloke, too. He was a bull of a bloke. He was like a Roman Matutek sort of character. And a smashing bloke, but um, he was around for a long time. But... Poland were in a very different place in those days, of course. Yeah. Um, the disparity between the 80s and the, the, the 2020 is, is stark, to say the least. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was uh, my first world final. Um, it was an incredible journey. We ended up with a silver medal, which, to be perfectly honest, I was chuffed to bits with. And you did that alongside Kenny Carter, as we've mentioned. I mean, just focusing on him for just a second, his... Legend goes before him, and we all know about Kenny Carter, but um, quite a Marmite character in Speedway, if, if that's the right phrase. I mean, how did you get on with him? How did you find him? He's quite known for being a fairly fiery character on his day, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Um, but um, I didn't threaten him in a lot of ways. I think he was, I think with a lot of his contemporaries, he'd, he'd sort of rubbed them up the wrong way. Um, but that was primarily because he was so determined to do well. And I think that was, I think that a lot of people misunderstood that as arrogance. Um, it, ca- it came across as that. So there's no question about that. Um, he was somebody that was very different away from the track, which I was very fortunate to see. A lot of people don't know that he was, he was actually a really decent bloke, actually away from the track. He did grow horns when he got there. Um, and as long as you didn't sort of take him on when he was in that mood, mm. he was fine. In actual fact, and I definitely uh, benefited from his um, his will to win. I embraced that rather than actually just sort of getting a little bit. You know, he he could he, he might say something, or he might be a little bit brash about a certain subject, or something but generally he and I got on pretty well and as I say in that world final he was great with me you know he was um, accommodating there was no arguments over um, gate positions for example he didn't sort of stamp his authority saying I'm having this gate all the time Um, we worked quite well and I I think that um, I had a good experience with, with Kenny Carter Mm. Where I know some people didn't, but I had a good a good one with Kenny Carter. Short, but um, yeah, um, it was decent, and 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 it was a shame that he he didn't win the world championship. He was good enough to, uh, but there was, he was almost trying to win it too much. If I think, if I criticise him, I think it was almost a sense of desperation to win it, and it didn't quite work out. Um, but. Um, yeah, a, a, an interesting character. 
Kelvin Tatum speaking on Humans of Speedway in the most recent episode, which was episode 14. Um, Don't forget to check out all of these in full if you haven't already. And if you uh, haven't made it to the end of the various episodes, then each episode we get each person we've spoken to to tell us about what their dream Speedway meeting would look like as well. So they're naming their all-time one to seven, their ideal track, um, maybe they would change a rule as well. Really interesting and, and sort of throws up all sorts of other conversations too. But that's at the uh, the final kind of 20 minutes or so of each episode. Check those out too. And as we head in towards 2021, well, we hope for a much better new year. Of course we do. Um, and um, health and happiness for your families. And... Um, you know, hang in there and hopefully things will be better very soon. And um, of course, it'd be great to see some Speedway live and in person and get ourselves back into the stadiums uh, in time for this summer. That's what we all hope for. And we've got some great episodes lined up for you heading into 2021. Keep following us on our social media channels. You can follow us on Twitter. We are at Speedway Humans. We're also on Instagram and Facebook as well. You get all the info uh, as and when uh, those are ready. And um, have a great new year. Thanks for following us. Thanks for listening through 2020. And we'll speak to you soon on Humans of Speedway. Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.